Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald's Creanitators. I'm Dave Busing, founder and editor-in-chief of ComicBookHerald.com. For today's interview, I am excited to be joined by Steve Fox, the writer of graphic novel Cheater Code, editor of the Department of Truth, and Razorblades, a horror anthology. We're going to talk about all that. Definitely want to start up front here with your work on Cheater Code, Steve. Thanks so much for joining. The first question I have for you is, so this graphic novel from Oni Press, Cheater Code, it's like you said, it's 18 plus, it's mature, it's very mature. <laughs> I think it's, it's been described as erotic, certainly. Um, like, what's the, how did this come about? And I guess, like, how long was this graphic novel in the works? Like, is this something, is this a story you've wanted to tell for a long time? Oh, boy, that's actually a pretty funny uh, question. And thank you for having me, by the way. Thrilled yeah. to be here. Uh, so Cheater Code has been in the works for a long time. It came out this past November. Um, it, it got delayed because of the pandemic and Diamond and all that. Mm -hmm. um, but I actually signed up Cheater Code in late 2016. Okay. Um, Oni is a very patient publisher. <laughs> and uh, it came about because they were launching their Limerence Press imprint, which is erotica and sex education and meant to be very inclusive and all encompassing. And uh, my friend Teeny Howard was writing Rick and Morty comics for, for Oni at the time. Mm -hmm. And her editor, Ari Yarwood, is the person who came up with Limerence and was really like the champion in-house. And Ari had told Teeny at one point that they were getting a lot of pitches about queer men, but not a lot of pitches from queer men. Mm. Um, so Teeny connected the two of us. And I had never considered doing an erotic story. It's, it was not on my bucket list. It was not like where I saw my career <laughs> heading in any way. <laughs> yeah. uh, and at the time, almost all my, my published work was for kids. I do a ton of kids work. Um, and that's why cheater code is credited to S a Fox just to keep things clean and separate on Amazon. Yeah. Um, yeah. But we connected and, and Ari really had kind of the perfect attitude about erotica in my mind anyway, which was that if you were going to pay $20 to read an erotic story, you really need something more than just the kind of titillation you can get for free online. Um, uh -huh. You know, you need an actual like, story to back it up with characters that you care enough about to follow for 120 pages. So I don't want to say that the erotic bits are optional. Like I don't think cheater code would be the same if you took out the sex, but the, the genesis of it was always to tell a story with sex in it, not to do yeah. a sex comic. Um, and in fact, some of the pitches I sent Ari had been ideas I had that didn't involve sex at all, where I was like, you know what? You could add anal to this. Um, <laughs> yeah. But Cheater Code is something I came up with for this line. I'm very thrilled that's the one she chose and that we find we found Daryl, um, the artist that, that brought the book to life because he was such a perfect fit for the tone, which is erotic, but it's funny and sad and goofy and, and all these other things too. Absolutely, yeah. No, that's a really interesting genesis because that was – I had some questions kind of related to that sort of the how did it come about? Was that a focus you intended? Because, you know, one thing I'm struck by in your work is you have like this very comedic romantic side on display in Cheater Code. Um, and you, I can picture a world where there's like it's an all ages kind of comedy almost, you know, or, or honestly even playing YA, you know, more mature, but not necessarily quite so erotic. How as you were <laughs> as you were planning out, you know, like, OK, I, I have this story to tell. And also there's going to be a lot of sex in it because that's part of the line. Um, how did you kind of balance that 
in terms of script, in terms of pitch? Like, was were you worried about like some unspoken line separating, I don't know, like porn from story? Like that that seems like a really tricky balance to walk. I guess how did you kind of manage that? Yeah, I mean, honestly, I. <sighs> You know, I was more worried about losing the sex in the story. And especially towards the back half, I had to think harder about like, also, when you talk about two-year code, it's so hard not for things to sound like double entendres, like think harder. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. Well, that's my, my initial question was like, how long and hard have you been thinking about this? And I'm like, nope, can't ask it that way. <laughs> but I did have to think a little more um, intensely about how to fit sex into these moments and, and not go too long without the erotic bits, because even though it, it's a story first and foremost, you're getting people in the door with the erotica tag. Um, mm-hmm. A big like bellwether for me was a movie called Short Bus, which is directed by the same guy who did Hedwig and the Angry Inch. And that movie has all real sex in it. And they cast the actors, didn't know each other. They built the story around these sort of like workshops they had, you know, very hippie production. Um, But it's like a real, very emotional story that happens to feature sex on camera. And sometimes it's funny and sometimes it's sexy, but it's certainly not a porn. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that very tired old adage of like, I know porn when I see it. I think it, it is true. You can kind of tell the dividing line when you see it. And that's why Cheater Code opens on like the porniest scene in the book where I intentionally went like a little cheesier and like, you know, pornish dialogue. And then, oh, you find out this is actually someone cheating on someone else. And it's quite sad. (laughs) So yeah, kind of like front load the expectations of, yeah, we're going to go to like sexy, explicit places, but we're going to make you feel stuff about it too. Right, right. No, I I appreciated that balance too, because it's like, it's very clear, like, okay, this is this is what you're in for, right? But then also like, yeah, this is going to get more nuanced. It's going to get more complicated. This is not actually the couple we're following. And of course, then it, it digs into, you know, this is the story is actually about this this man who is being cheated on by that couple we see in the first page. And of course, his journey emotionally through a very difficult breakup um, and, and kind of then the role that like the video games and the history and all that nostalgia kind of plays into it, which is very, very fun. Uh, I definitely enjoy that. I think anyone who has played video games literally at all will have like some (laughs) touch points, you know, like there are some reference points where you can be like, oh, this is maybe Skyrim or oh, this is Spyro or Sonic or whatever. Right. Like there's all these fun touch points that I I think is is really well integrated Um, as far as writing the the actual sort of breakup and overcoming (laughs) it piece. how, How much of that is like actually drawing from like personal experience on your end, obviously probably not literally you were transported to a a video game dimension. (laughs) No, I spent eight months in my PlayStation four. It was absolute hell. Uh, you know, (laughs) call of duty zombies almost killed me. No, um, actually it's more autobiographical than people realize because, uh, no, I, you know, I didn't have sex with a bunch of video game characters, but in 2015, I, ended a a long-term relationship and well, I didn't end it. He ended it. (laughs) And uh, (laughs) I wasn't cheated on. Thankfully I had been cheated on by another long-term partner, but uh, part of my bouncing back from that relationship, which was really my first like adult relationship out of college was, you know, getting out there and dating and meeting other people. And so I really filtered that experience of like finding yourself through other people 
into cheater code, uh, you know, applying it to all this video game stuff and trying to have fun with all those references. And, you know, like you said, these games I've played my whole life and these kind of like game archetypes that even if you didn't necessarily play Mass Effect, you get like the sci-fi kind of vibe. Yeah. Um, so it was bringing a lot of that into it, which makes the long production time even funnier because, you know, the emotions I was still sitting in in 2016, I don't feel in 2021, um, you know, I've been with my current partner for almost four years now. So it's not mm-hmm. like a, a fresh wound <laughs> from my, yeah. my 2015 breakup. Um, but thankfully, it's not like a one to one thing where I look at it and cringe. Um, it was just like, you know, let me bring a little of this vulnerability, a little bit of this confusion into Kennedy's character, because I've been in a similar spot where something really took me off guard. Like I did not know the end was coming. Um, and that, that, especially like those first 20 pages are, are very me working through some of my feelings. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah, no, I can see. And I, and I think there's. It's definitely sold as this this personal journey that feels very relatable, um, even if it's not something that, you know, uh, like is totally like a one to one for readers, even just as someone who like I've been married for coming up on 10 years. And even just like if from my perspective, which is totally different than yours, I was like, oh, I feel this. I feel this emotional journey this character is going on, um, which is which is great. And that's what I look for, um, you know, in comics and in story now. Is this is the sort of erotic this Oni uh, line? Is that something you'd be interested in returning to? You know, under the the nom de plume of S.A. Fox, <laughs> um, or do you have you know? Because like obviously, like all of us, you know, we all contain multitudes. Like you mm-hmm. know, like your your I think author profile at this point is becoming more more dominated, more heavily tied to like horror. You know, just with the work on Razor Blades and like mm-hmm. you did a short story for TKO recently, Night Train, which is really cool. Talk about that maybe. Um, but like. Is that something, the erotic work, where you're like, if it's the right opportunity, yes, this is something I definitely want to pursue. Where do you kind of stand in that regard? You know, I spent a couple of years saying, like, this was such a cool one-off. I don't expect I'll ever do anything like this again. And that's why I really yeah. tried to, like, leave everything on the table with Cheater Code. Like, I've had people ask, like, oh, you know, do you want to do a sequel or whatever? It's like, no, every, everything's there. Like, I, I approached it as this is probably the only time I'm going to do something like this, but I've been really lucky to get such a fun response to it. Like the audiences it has found among like gay nerds, among people who do not identify as gay, but like the, the nerdy stuff and like the, the interpersonal stuff among people who like, you know, just men loving men stories, but don't necessarily identify as queer men. Um, I would certainly go back to it. And actually Daryl and I have talked about doing a not a sequel, but a sort of uh, thematically and tonally similar book on our own um, mm. that we've we've thrown around some fun ideas for. So I think it's something that I would revisit. And it's funny too because Daryl is a huge horror fan himself. The whole mm. Silent Hill inspired level was his idea, and that is you know a key part of the book. It's like it works really well, I think, as like this harsh transition into the video game world. Yeah. And that didn't even come from me because as much as I love horror, I'm a huge baby about horror video games. Like I, <laughs> I can watch yeah. it, I can read it, and I can write it, but I can't play it. Um, but Daryl loves them, so he's like, "Oh, can we please do like a Silent Hill level?" And then he came up with these, you know, horrific genital monstrosities. Um, and Daryl's <laughs> right. actually contributing a piece to an upcoming issue of Razor Blades in a very different style than what you've seen from him in in um, Cheater Code. Amazing. So I yeah. do think 
there may be more essay Fox on the horizon. Um, and it really comes down to like seeing how people have reacted to this and thinking, Oh, okay. I guess there, you know, there is an audience for this that may not be huge, but really likes what they like. Yeah, no, that's awesome. That's very cool. Now, prior to cheater code coming out, or I guess kind of simultaneously, if you've been started in 2016, you know, you were a prominent comics critic with Paste Magazine. Uh, what do you think the, the comics journalism experience brought to your own creative work, uh, if anything, as you were going through the process of, of finishing up this graphic novel? You know, it was tricky sometimes to navigate, like trying to uh, keep your <laughs> journalistic uh, integrity while you're also pitching some of the companies you're covering. Um, yeah. But, you know, Paste was a great experience overall in getting to look at a lot of things critically. But also, I, I never wrote reviews and I didn't do a lot of like straight out and out criticism. I did a lot of interviews. I did a lot of like process related things. And I think that was nice because I got a chance to sort of pick the brains of a lot of my heroes and a lot of like up and coming creators. Um, and that always inspired me to kind of kick my own ass into gear yeah. and also to look at things a little differently, like especially like um, the white noise guys, uh, mm -hmm. Ram and Alex, like we did things with them for paste which led to me becoming friends with them and getting to work with them on razor blades and kind yeah. of think differently about the kind of books they're doing and other folks are doing. So I wouldn't say that it was like paste was not a calculated effort to backdoor my way into the industry. Uh, right. I had published comics before I ever wrote a word for paste. Um, but it did expose me to a lot of folks who I've become friends with and colleagues with, and also gave me a chance to, read a lot of things, you know, for free and early that I might not have had a chance to get around to otherwise and to think about things in a, a different light. Sure, sure. No, that makes sense. I, yeah, I'm always kind of interested in the, I think there's a, maybe not an assumption, but oftentimes it, it can be out there that like, you know, comics crit or comics journalism is like a pipeline to, yeah, becoming a, a creator. Like that's like every, everybody who writes about comics wants to write their own comics kind of thing. And I think a lot of times, there can be that shirt overlap because like, well, yeah, like they, like a lot of times it's just people who really love comics, you know? Right. So like there are they, so <laughs> many like amazing critics and journalists who are doing it purely for the love of having that ecosystem and mm -hmm. don't have any desire to write on their own. Um, but you know, it's, it's a broader publishing phenomenon too. My, my background, um, before Pace was I worked at Random House for five years and yeah. people do go into publishing thinking like, okay, well, you know, I want to be an editor because one day I want to publish my own book. Like, I'm, you know, I'm going to work here because I'm working on a book or I'm working on whatever. Um, I think it is like you have that passion. So you want the proximity and comics, especially is like such a small microcosm sometimes that you do have people um, like uh, what's his name, David Propose. Um, you know, he's doing mm -hmm. the book for Aftershock and he, he does criticism stuff. Um, yeah. Haas, my frequent collaborator, does panel by panel and is an amazing letterer for all sorts of people. So <laughs> And letters every every good comic that uh, Aditya yeah. Bankard doesn't letter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. It's the D tier Haas. Um, and um, Haas has done most of Razorblades now at this point and has showed off so many different styles. So it's always fun to work with him. Yeah. Uh, and his, his uh, fake name for Cheater Code was Harry Otterman, 
which I think <laughs> yeah, really I noticed that. I love that. Really takes the cake out of fake names. <laughs> <laughs> it's very good. Yeah, I did appreciate that backup with the the little video game profiles yeah. <laughs> uh, for all of you. No, it's pretty great. Um, so yeah, no, it's interesting. I, I I think you're totally spot on. And then like I think you know, kind of like you mentioned with paste, you know, it's kind of a it's learning craft, but it's also like there's some networking there. Um, and obviously, one one individual that you've gotten to know and and work with pretty closely is James Tynan, who has had a massive. I mean, obviously, it's been a, a steady like growth, but the trend for him has been massive over the last couple of years in terms of uh, just like people getting to know him as a creator, his books just absolutely taking off. One of which is the book that you're editing, the department of truth, which came out late last year. Um, it's one of my favorite comics going into this year. Like no questions asked. I, I love the department of truth. It's a fascinating book. How do you approach editing someone else's work? Um, especially, you know, a creator like James who like, he's writing Batman, like he's writing the biggest <laughs> comic in the world, you know? Um, like what's your, what's your focus and kind of, how do you try to, to bring your own, um, thoughts and, and, you know, just like your own skill set to a book like that? Yeah. I, I love talking about that because it, you know, not every editor is also a writer. And when you are both, it presents as many, I think, challenges as benefits because my, my job with James is not to tell him how Steve Fox would write the department of truth because obviously mm -hmm. james is very accomplished he doesn't really need to know how c fox would write the department of truth um but my job is to make sure the best version of james and martin and aditya and dylan is what hits the page on time uh without anyone like breaking their back to do it yeah and i think it works really well with department of truth because james and i are you know, obviously we're in very different career places, but we're peers when it comes to sort of our references, our age range, the kind of stuff we consumed and the stuff that fascinates us. So we have a lot of shared talking points and a lot of shared um, sort of like interest well that we draw from. So when he's talking about this bizarre conspiracy stuff or when he gets really into certain weird aspects of conspiracies, I'm not a complete outsider to that stuff. I can get mm -hmm. down with that too and, and get into it and see where he's coming from and help him figure out the way to communicate that on the page that is going to be exciting. It's not going to be too much of an info dump. It's not going to lose people because it's, you know, too, too high level. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, we just get along very well. I, I think it, it works because of a mutual respect because, you know, James is doing such big books right now but he's not an, an egotist. Like he's not like, Oh, well I'm Batman. So you can't edit me. <laughs> you know, that's just like not yeah. James's vibe at all. Um, and like on razor blades, which I, I know we'll get around to, you know, we're very much co-creators on that. Um, so it's fun to balance yeah. a project like razor blades where we have kind of, you know, one-to-one -one say on things and input with department of truth, where I'm looking over his shoulder with some of the things I send him that I've written where he's giving me a second perspective where he's looking over my shoulder. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's like a very blended relationship and it works because we get along so well. Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting on the department of truth. So because that comic is so, I mean, it's, it's literally a comic about, you know, the conspiracies of the world mm -hmm. and, and how they manifest. Um, how much of a, a deep dive into like the world of <laughs> crazy conspiracies have you had to do? Like, has that become uh, like a research project for you? Yeah. Well, you know, it's fun. And I think the, a lot of these are things that have always interest me and James both and, and probably other members of the creative team. But mm -hmm. I, you know, James jokes a lot that his search history is probably like 
such a red flag at this point. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And especially in this era, it, it is an extra challenge to walk the line when disinformation spreads so easily. You know, if you were doing the department of truth 10 years ago, we would be talking about these things in such a different light because things would seem completely unbelievable and and nonsensical. And the book probably wouldn't land the same way, but we're now talking about it in an era where, you know, members of Congress believe completely insane things and have no problem going on TV to say it. Mm -hmm. So it, it is a, challenge. Um, but it is a fun research project. And, uh, I have done quite a few deep dives into things, especially stuff that's going to be coming up in the second arc, which I don't, I can't remember which solicits have gone public yet. I'm pretty sure the Bigfoot one has, I'm very excited to get into stuff like that. (laughs) Awesome. Yeah. Um, mild spoiler alert, if not, I guess. Well, that uh, one is like, that's substantially more lighthearted and fun, right? Yeah. In a way that's like old school conspiracy compared to the darkness that obviously is present in a lot of it today. Yeah. And I think folks are going to see as the second arc comes out that, you know, it's not a ripped from the headlines book. Like, you know, it's not law and order SVU where something awful is going to happen. And then three months later, you're going to see it in the department of truth. James has a pretty extensive plan already laid out and we know where the book is going and we're going to play on some of the more lighthearted ones, like you say, and you know, some of the darker realities like the gun violence issue from the first arc. Um, So, you know, we were able to blend both and kind of get a fuller sense of the scope of the series Um, but it's great. And also diving deep into like conspiracy movies, like parallax view, JFK, uh, clute, like all these, the seventies, especially was like so much paranoia. And Mm -hmm. that was a very fun deep dive, um, to do right when we, we started the book in 2019. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. I, I look forward to that immensely. And yeah, like you said, it's that balance between like conspiracy being like JFK theories, I feel like is for a long time, like at least as someone who grew up in like the nineties and into the two thousands, like there was just like an element of like harmlessness to that, even though yeah. it was obviously like it is, it is actually a dark subject matter when you think about it. Um, but yeah. The, and then like department of truth, number three, like you mentioned the gun violence issue that broke me, like it absolutely broke me out. It was a devastating issue, um, but super effective. So I'm, I, I'm infatuated with the work. I'm, I'm excited to see where it goes from here. Thank you. Um, yeah. I mean, I also feel yeah. really lucky to be working on a book that I would be excited about as a reader. Um, you know, I don't, it's very much its own thing, but such a huge, uh, like lighthouse in my, my creative life is older vertigo series. Like that was really where, uh, as a reader, I cut my teeth and, you know, department of truth feels so classically like something that would have been a vertigo hit (laughs) at the right time. Uh, and I'm very excited. We're going to do it at image where, you know, we, we control the whole product essentially. Um, and get to build it from the ground up. Yeah, no, it's awesome. Uh, it's it's great. And, and you know, speaking of work with um, with James and in collaboration, you, know, you mentioned Razor Blade. So this is the horror anthology that the two of you started uh, in a, like 2020, kind of like pandemic was in full swing um, when this got announced. And you've done, I think, three issues so far of, mm-hmm. of this quarterly horror anthology. Uh, before we kind of dig into the content, um, how how is the launch gone? You know, now kind of almost one year later, and like, how do you feel about where Razor Blades is at? Like, has it surpassed your expectations? It's it's exactly where you hope to be. Like, what's your what's your one year later kind of reaction? It has been 
a ride. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm, it's such a fun and funny project to really talk about in depth because, you know, James is sitting at like the top of the comic industry right now, but self-publishing is a whole other ball game. Yeah. Like the difference between writing Batman and doing your own anthology where you collaborate with the printer, the distributor, the shipper, like all of these things where we're putting the files together ourselves. My boyfriend does the actual layout for the magazine. (laughs) (laughs) I I stand over his shoulder in InDesign as we put all the files together. Um, So it is such a a project, um, but it's so fun. And James and I have built it to kind of be like our own ideal magazine. Like we put people in there because we love their work and we want to see them and we want to see them next to other people we love. Uh, and that yeah. has always been kind of like the guiding light has been like, okay, who can we get from the prose world next to mainstream comics, next to indie comics, next to horror illustrators from Twitter who've never had something published in print. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's really been the most exciting thing about doing the, the magazine. And it has sup- surpassed expectations and then settled into a really nice sustainable level because yeah, you know, we launched the first issue and originally we, I, the original idea for this was going to be 20 pages shorter and only digital. Mm-hmm. And James and I both get excited. And James, especially when you work with him, he's always thinking about the next bigger thing. So yeah. if you start out with like a, you know, a 40 page anthology, you end up publishing an 80 page anthology. <laughs> <laughs> and on razor blades where there's really no one to tell us no, except ourselves we're able to indulge that fully. Um, but we launched that first issue and James was like, well, you know, I'd, I, I want a physical artifact. Let's print 500. We'll see if anyone even wants it in print and we'll go from there. And those sold yeah. out in less than an hour. And Dang, obviously yeah. some of that was like the newness and the speculation. But when we put the subscription on sale, you know, we were very pleased with that response. And now it's become kind of like a print majority project. Um, because we found that so many people do want to read it in print and they want to have it on their shelves. And here we were a year ago thinking like, Oh, let's do it digitally. People love the the convenience. No, people love holding a print magazine. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's definitely, I mean, as anthologies go. So yeah, like you said, like these are typically around like 72 to 80 pages. Mm-hmm. Um, you have these, this incredible array of creators contributing, you know, like, like you said, it's, it's a who's who of like, who's hot in sort of like the, the mainstream or like even indie comic scene, but then also a lot of like folks that I would not have been familiar with. And then I'm now I'm exploring the work because they're in this magazine kind of thing. Um, I, I would not have anticipated obviously as someone totally disconnected, (laughs) but that this would have had a print, uh, component at all, you know, like it, it feels definitely like a thing that would be because you're, you know, creating it out of your, your own, spare time and houses, you know, that it would be a digital artifact, but I can see in much the same way that like, just as a reader, I mean, yeah, I like holding the comic in my hands. Like if I have that option and I have a shop that can get it to me, I like just having it over digital. Um, but with something like this too, where it is like, yeah, I get to look at uh, 72 pages of some of the best art in comics, you know, like that print thing is going to have a huge life. Um, I I'm kind of shocked. Like how is that? Um, Oh, excuse me. Is that like, uh, like, a I don't know. Was that like concerning? I guess was that like, oh my gosh, we have to print and distribute this these many like <laughs> these many issues, or like where do you net out on that? Because I know just from a distribution standpoint, it's like now you're your own mini diamond, and that that's like a a scary proposition. I think. Yeah, I mean, it is so much work. Like I'll be honest, because James and I handle 
all of it. And then we work with the distributor. Uh, the first issue, though, it was just us. And so we were in James's apartment, masks on, physically packing 500 issues uh, yeah. with James's partner, Sam, and with Vita Ayala, who lives in Brooklyn and came over to help us. So we're there, like 500 issues, packing it, wrapping it, making sure it's going to survive the trip, printing mm-hmm. labels, and doing it all by hand. So mad respect to every single person who self-publishes. Yeah. Um, but that that was going to be completely un- unsustainable going forward, especially when we got more orders. So we work with the distributor now, but it is still such a different experience handling each step of the process than it is working with an established publisher where you turn in your part and all the magic just happens for you. Right, right. Um, so I think it's given us both a lot of illumination into that. And again, it's it's funny because James is a decade into his comic career. He's writing these very big books. Uh, you know, I'm a decade into publishing of different types and I'm getting these very cool opportunities. But self-publishing is like such a different rodeo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, I'd imagine. It's, it's interesting. Um, as far as like coordinating... The, all the different creators that are participating. Uh, what has that been like for you? And I guess too, like what is, I mean, are you, are you editing all of the stories? Is that kind of like part of your role with, with razor blades? Yeah. So at this point, you know, James handles so much of like the, the money distribution and that side. And then mm-hmm. once we've decided on who we want in the magazine, I kind of take over from there. Yeah. Um, but the, you know, the level of editing is different than on something like the department of truth, because we're inviting people who we already trust to do something great. Yeah. And we're trying to see, okay, if we give you eight pages and you know, almost no guidelines whatsoever, what do you do in that space with something that you're going to own at the end of the day, we're not keeping any rights, whatever, what is your eight pages of scary horror? Um, so it's not a lot of like granular, micromanagement by any means, but it is a lot of schedules to keep in mind, a lot of people to check in with and make sure all Mm -hmm. the files match up that we're getting, you know, the right resolution, the right dimensions, um, that it's going to the letterer on time that we're, uh, you know, spell checking and and all these things. So the level of involvement changes depending on the creative team. And there are some where I've, I've given heavier feedback and some where we've been pretty hands off, but it's such a fun experience. Like you don't often get the chance to work with 50 different creators you like in the span of like nine months. <laughs> right. Yeah. And yeah, no, that's amazing. What, what was the most surprising or like, like get that you were like the most excited about? You're like, Oh, I can't believe we got a story from, from blank. We were so excited to get an illustration from Tilly Walden. Mm-hmm. Um, we were very excited to get an interview with go Tanabe, um, because you just see so few English interviews with manga creators. Yeah. Um, yeah, I know. I, I don't want to like make anyone feel bad by naming someone else, but those are the <laughs> right, first right. two that really jumped out. I was also very excited. Um, one of my favorite novels I read last year was clown in a cornfield by Adam Caesar, um, mm-hmm. which was like a breakout horror novel. And we, he's doing a short for next issue. Um, so it's just, oh, it's cool. just fun and cool to like read something and say, this person's awesome. Let's reach out to them. And then, you know, more often than not, they say yes. Like, obviously, we've had people who can't do it because of schedules or other reasons, but we're getting such cool people who are excited to do whatever they want in the confines of, of our magazine. And that's always a good feeling. Yeah, 
Yeah, no, it's definitely it's definitely reached like a a prestige status, I think, just because of all the the people involved them, which is which is awesome. It, it's interesting too, like because you see even on like the mainstream kind of big two side of things, like DC right now, kind of moving towards more of like an anthology light feel with some of their stuff. You know, they got more oversized, kind of more expensive titles. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always thought like Marvel, if like if they ever rebooted the Ultimate Universe, like a single anthology of just like, hey, here's the Marvel Universe in seventy two pages would be super cool. Um, do, do you think the anthology approach has like like, why do you think it's been so limited in comics? And do you think it's like kind of, it's actually having a wave here? Like, do you, I mean, definitely like with razor blades, that's mm-hmm. a unique proposition, but it's also like, there's an appetite as you guys are seeing. Um, do you think that's like, not, is this the future of comics, but like, <laughs> is there a place for this to become a bigger thing? I hope there is, you know, you always have retailers who say the anthologies are hard, a hard sell. And, you know, there's a lot of data to, to, back that up over the years and because it's not the first time that dc has tried a more anthologized approach to things they've done backups before they've done um you know family titles before i love it as a creator and i love it as a reader because you get exposed to new things but i also understand from like a a basic economic decision that if you're a a cash trapped fan or if you have you know forty dollars to go around for the month you kind of want to buy the stuff that's reliable to you and not necessarily take as much of a risk on new talent. Right. So I do think that the benefit something like razor blades has is that we're going after genre fans, like horror fans are very passionate. So when we're saying, okay, we're going to bring you the best in horror and it's going to be fresh and new and younger and it's in one spot. I think like that presents a, a sales hook that sometimes like, okay, we're going to bring you, xyz superheroes together doesn't because there's so many options for that um but i really hope it lasts and i really hope it it thrives because it is a great way you know maybe um a certain title that can't support its own ongoing can be a backup in something that does and um i don't want to name names again but (laughs) i think you certainly like if you look at dc right now you can see stuff that um might not last 20 issues as its own ongoing but in the back of Batman or action comics or whatever can have a healthy run. Right. Right. Well, and and definitely part of the appeal there, I think right now for me as a reader too, is like not only on a character level, but on a diversity level, there's maybe a better chance for them to take shots, you know, and with the big two, especially with DC to be like, yeah, let's, let's push maybe and and expand our line in ways that they wouldn't have if it was like, Hey, we have to give them a solo ongoing for sure um, historically. So I I think that ultimately is a good thing. And with razor, yeah, absolutely. I was going to just say too, with razor blades too, I think we, we wanted to offer some regularity issue to issue. So we have recurring features. So it's like, it's not like you're going to get something completely out of left field each time. Like we want you to Mm -hmm. be surprised. We want you to be pleasantly surprised but you also know you're going to get something from James at the top of every issue. You're going to get some like crazy, bizarre, awesome thing from Brian level at the end of each issue. Like yeah. we have, you know, Ram V and John J Pearson and Aditya doing a thing every other issue, Alex Packnadal and Jason Liu. So you're getting consistency throughout where you can count on, you know, 20 or 30 pages that you know are going to be up your alley. Yeah. And then you're getting surprised by what you find in the rest of the magazine. 
And that was definitely part of the appeal for me as as a longtime comics fan, but not as a horror genre fan, mm. um, just because I was like, well, I yeah, but I know these names. I like I like these white noise creators and I, I love the Department of Truth. So I'm like, yeah, I want to read this three, you know, this three page story from from James and, and um, Martin Simmons up front and be and not go to sleep tonight <laughs> because <laughs> <laughs> it's terrifying. But like, yeah, that was I, I do like that continuity that that recurs, even if it's not literally you know, because just as a comic reader, like that's how my brain works, right? right. It's like, okay, well, this thing continues in the next issue, and like, you know, it's it's not quite that, but it's got a, a feel of sameness that I think is is actually appreciated. Um, all right, cool. So this, yeah, so Razor Blades, I definitely recommend people check out. Again, I would say even if like, even if you're not a huge horror fan, just on a comics craft level and on a creator basis, like definitely worth giving a look. Um, so some other things you've got coming up, you're going to be writing Spider Ham. Great yeah. power, no responsibility. Uh, definitely different than the the horror genre, I imagine. Uh, what can you tell us about what to expect from that project? Which I think, like, I'm I'm definitely super excited for it. Um, and I, I know a lot of readers will be as well. Like, what's uh, what can you tell us? Obviously, without uh, spoilers. Yeah, I'm so excited. That's still one of those projects where I, I like. I feel like I'm not going to believe it until it's in my hands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, Spider Ham was such a blast to write. So it's written. Uh, published by Scholastic through part of their new partnership with Marvel. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a 60 page original graphic novel. It is set in Spider-Ham's world. So it's all the, the animal counterparts to the Marvel universe and all their puntastic names like Croctor Strange. Yes. Um, and it was just so much fun to get to live in that universe for 60 pages. And the way that the, the Scholastic books work is these are, taking and i'm you know i'm not speaking as an official disney employee here but we are doing comic accurate versions of these characters so it's it's not the movie spider ham it's not like downsized for kids it may not be like textbook continuity but these are stories that if you're a fan of spider ham as you've seen him in the 616 universe through spider verse and his other appearances Right. This is going to give you that fingers crossed, hooves crossed, whatever. <laughs> um, and it was so yeah. much fun to write and to work with Shadia, um, who, who's the artist on the book, to do so many animal related puns and jokes, play a little bit with cartoon physics, but also really like the thing about Spider-Ham is, yes, he's funny. He's a comedy character. But if you go to the, the original Spider-Ham run, he also has a lot of the same responsibility themes as spider-man and you know he wants to do good he's just a little bit of a a a pig head about it sometimes Mm -hmm. um so he's a fun character to play with to to balance the goofiness with like a fun traditional superhero story yeah yeah no that's awesome i so you mentioned you know this is part of the it's a very new scholastic line, right? I think yes. there was a, a Miles Morales OGN announced uh, as kind of to kick it off, which I know a lot of people are super excited about, myself included. Uh, you mentioned kind of, okay, here are the the expectations. Um, is Are there certain like, I don't know, are there certain guidelines or sort of rules that you have to fit within with aside from, hey, you get 60 pages. Uh, we want it to be more kind of the comics-based character. Like what kind of, I don't know, like like rules or guidelines do you get as this being part of a scholastic line that is very new i mean i will say and i'm choosing my words yeah carefully but not defensively i was surprised with what we got away with okay and i was very happy with the editorial process um both on scholastic and marvel's end 
super encouraging. Things were not off limits to us. We got to really like tell a real banger of a 60 page spider ham story. Nice. Uh, yeah. And you know, you know, you're not going to see like weird violence or swear words because it's for younger kids. But beyond that, we were not on unnecessary guardrails. Like if -hmm. you like the adult spider ham books, if you liked the one that Zeb Wells did um, last year, and unfortunately the the artist escapes me, you will enjoy this. Um, It's not a situation where it's like, okay, this is going to be for anyone under 12 and anyone over 12 is, is not going to find something to like. This is very much like give us spider ham. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. Were there, was there something like, did you have to, I kind of like uh, talk yourself out of certain like into the spider verse kind of like mentality of the character, which I mean, isn't that different, you know, necessarily than the comics, but like, were there, was there a party that had to like separate those two entities in your head? Yeah. Cause I'm also a big John Mulaney fan. So yeah. I did have to consciously, like I went back and read the original spider ham run and like focused more on, on his comic appearances because he is a, a funny character, but he's not like a, every single line is a gag character. Like he is in spider verse, mm-hmm. the movie. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think Marvel would admit that the lines have blurred because the John Mulaney take is popular and you know, it's yeah. not like it's a world apart from his comic appearances. Um, but I did have to kind of consciously think like, okay, it's not John Mulaney. Don't hear his voice. <laughs> like, <laughs> create your own voice for him. Um, and just kind of embody like the the fuller version of the character where it is jokes, but it's also, you know, his skewed sense of responsibility and heroism. Cool, cool. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to it. So this is, uh, I think it comes out in or scheduled for October 2021. For October, right? yeah. So I'm, I'm very excited. And I will say, you know, uh, without spoiling anything, we got to debut uh, an animal version of a certain Marvel character that I'm very excited about. Ooh, so that was yeah. very fun to get to uh, Shadi and I to be the first appearance of, of, of a animalized Marvel hero. Um, so I hope folks will get excited to check that out. And also, you know, when I get projects like this or like Cheater Code, my my whole thing really is like, if I never get another chance to do this, I better make this one count. So mm-hmm. those 60 pages, you're going to see a lot of fun stuff from Spider-Ham's world, maybe even some other worlds. Who knows? Don't want to spoil too much. Um, but if you've ever enjoyed a Spider-Ham story before and wanted to see more of that animal world, you know, hopefully that'll scratch. This will scratch that itch. Great tease, great tease. Do you, do you have a document that is entirely animal pun names of Marvel <laughs> characters? <laughs> I did have to keep track because the other funny thing is, you know, that continuity has not been the most consistent over the years. I think each sure. time someone's gone to do a spider ham, they have like come up with, you know, occasionally contradictory new characters. Uh, and there were certain ones where like Doc Sampson has a clam version that if you Google that, it is like pure body horror. Like it just does <laughs> not look right so i had a list of ones where i really wanted to fit in and then i had a small list of ones that i was afraid to look at (laughs) (laughs) that's awesome yeah i definitely i I need to do a binge when that comes out and uh and run through some spider ham history because it has it has been a minute um i still need to check out that zip wells uh mini too it's great it's been on my radar for a while yeah i think robson roca maybe was the artist uh you know apologies for not remembering off the top of my head but it was such a great um, update of like the cl- classic Spider-Ham. And it was definitely uh, an inspiration in how I 
got away from the, the John Mulaney of it all. <laughs> yeah, this book. yeah. Very cool. All right. So in addition to Spider-Ham, uh, what's up next for you? Or like what kind of things do you want to do you want to plug or promote? Yeah, well, I do also have Night Train, the TKO short you mentioned, and I'm very yeah. proud of that. Um, that actually I wrote before Razor Blades was even like a twinkle in our eye. So it was oh, yeah. funny timing that I had a, a horror short story come out at the same time as a Razor Blades issue, um, but completely unrelated. So I love no, that. Steve, I, I will tell you that my wife is my wife is pregnant with our third, <laughs> and uh, I, d- I did not appreciate that that story. <laughs> it definitely scared the heck out of me. <laughs> yeah, well, it was partially inspired by my friend who you know uh, you know the baby's fine. I'll say in advance, but my yeah, yeah, one of yeah. my my friends, uh, two of my friends actually, you know, they had a child, and as a thirty one year old gay man with a dog and no interest in ever having kids, it was kind of um, interesting to ponder the the situation sure Sure. um but i'm very proud of that i have a number of cool things coming up um for people who buy my kids stuff uh, i did two scary graphic novels through a publisher named capstone and i have two more of those coming up so it's been fun to do like the spooky standalones for kids yeah um most of which don't have happy endings like the nice thing is even though it's for 10 year olds, they, you know, they let me kill the 10 year olds. So, uh, (laughs) lots of kid carnage. Um, I have two aftershock graphic novels getting announced soon. Um, both co-written with my friend, Steve Orlando. Um, so we have those coming up They're on very different ends of the spectrum. One is a, uh, for younger readers, which I think we're going to announce at the end of this month, actually. And one is an adult horror thriller story. Uh, I'm trying to think of what else I have coming up. I also have a fun, a couple fun kids justice league things coming up, a, a justice league Christmas book in September, uh, a Batman activity book this summer. So I'm going to keep like having the weird confusing career that bounces between <laughs> activity books and adult horror. Um, razor blades four will be out in April and then razor blades five is going to finish out our first year in July. Cool. Keep them busy. Yeah, I think that's all I can mention officially. Oh, and then I have a a graphic novel through Z2, um, one of their music graphic novels uh, for a band called Ice Nine Kills, which um, even if you're not a fan of the band is very much like an homage to slasher horror movies. So if you like anything from, you know, the Friday the 13th series through to like Final Destination, Happy Death Day, I think uh, you'll find something to enjoy in that one and that's how well, that's, at the end of april that's immediately my next spotify search because i actually don't know that band um i they did they released um chasing the bird which was a charlie parker jazz musician uh by dave chisel oh, last yeah, year yeah. i loved loved that graphic novel um so yeah I'm, I'm curious to check out more of their stuff i've seen they have graphic novels coming up from like like blondie and like it's like they have some like pretty big acts yeah um, ice, nine kills? ice nine kills yeah they go by yeah, ink, check INK. um okay the, their most recent album every song is an homage to a different horror movie so it's very yeah. up my alley uh and it's been a lot of fun to work on that um with with the, the hulk team at z2 and, and with the musicians as well so that's coming out at the end of april cool cool all right, we'll keep all that in mind. I'm definitely going to link here to uh, Cheer Code and some of your other stuff. We'll link to Razor Blades as well. Uh, before I let you go, what are in between all of this, which is a <laughs> lot, do you, what are you reading? Do you have time to read? <laughs> <laughs> you know what's funny? I, I spent a lot of my my past couple of years, I've been doing a full chronological X-Men reread. Oh, heck yeah. Uh, yeah. So when I have downtime, I'm reading, I'm up to the 91 now. Uh, so, and I started with Giant Size X-Men. So I've read... 
20 years of X-Men almost. Yeah. Um, but I do try to read current stuff too. <laughs> uh, I, I recently read the silver coin, the first issue, which is Michael Walsh's new image horror story. Um, yes. Yeah. Chip wrote the first issue. That's fantastic. Uh, and then I just got the first two issues of chaos agent, which is coming out from scout and it's yeah. gorgeous. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I expect to love it. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of some other recent things. Uh, Barbalian from Dark Horse, I'm really enjoying. Yeah. Um, Tate is doing great work over there. I try to keep up on as much as I can, but the more likely scenario is that I read a first issue, I think it's great, and then I wait and read the whole thing when it's done. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's yep. the, uh, the sustainable, read, sustainable way I can read things these days. Sure, sure. I hear that. Well, Steve, this has been a pleasure. Uh, it's been awesome to talk to you. And uh, yeah, we'll we'll link to the, the works here and look forward to more from you coming this year. Thanks so much for taking the time.